Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Well, the title of my message this morning is, What Does Revival Look Like? What does revival look like? You know, as I look around the room this morning, I don't see too many white-haired people. So I would venture a guess that there are very few, if any, people in the room this morning that have ever experienced a true revival. And after I get through with the message, maybe you'll understand why I say that. You know, uh, driving past a church and seeing a sign on the lawn that says, Revival, June 6th through the 12th, Evangelist so-and-so, that's not revival. That is a meeting but it's not revival. And you know, many of us have been alive long enough to have experienced a number of great moves of God. Um, I came in to the world (laughs) at the end of the healing revival. I can remember as a little girl, we lived with my grandparents for a period of time and my granddaddy had one of those great big wooden radios, you know, that was rounded at the top. And after dinner at night, we would go into his bedroom. I'd sit on the floor, just a little kid, And he would tune into this 100,000-watt station, I think it was, in Del Rio, Texas. And all the healing evangelists were preaching on that radio station. So I listened to Jack Coe and A.A. Allen and William Branham and some of these great men of God. But even that was not revival. That was a movement. Then I I, I came up as a teenager in the Jesus movement. And then we experienced the charismatic movement. And then we experience the Word of Faith movement. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is what is true revival. And the only way to get the definition of true revival is to go to the Word of God and see what God has to say about it. You know, we know that there's got to be a massive revival before Jesus returns. Because James says in James chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 that there's going to be a massive harvest from the earth before Jesus returns. So we know that a great revival has to take place, and honestly, I believe we already have our toes in the edge of it. Now, I'm sure that knowing your pastors, you've been praying for revival as a church, but sometimes it's hard to stretch your faith out and believe for something that you've never seen before. I mean, what we're getting ready to experience in God is something that we've never seen before. So it's even more important that we see revival from God's viewpoint, from the Word of God. Because three days of the kind of revival that I'm going to talk about this morning can accomplish more than 30 years of laboring without it. That's how powerful it is. So what is revival? The simplest definition that I could give you is found in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 3, Isaiah 64 verses 1 and 2. I'll just give you those references. We're not going to take time to turn to them. But basically, I can summarize it in two words. God comes. (laughs) It's when God comes and does what no man can do. And when he comes, everything changes. It impacts all of society. We can expect revival to start first in the church because God is going to need workers, laborers, to go forth into the world. So revival's going to hit the church first. But then it's going to spread outward from the church as believers take it out into the world. Revival comes when awareness of God and a realization of need for him consumes people. I don't mean just Christians. I mean everybody. 
to the point where they can think of little else except I need to get right with God. First, like I said, it'll change the church. Then it starts to impact society and it affects every level of society. It will restore families. It will affect the economy. It will restore morality. Dear Lord, we need a restoration of morality in this country. It even influences the government. We'll see some examples of that in a moment. So if you want to see real change in America, and I believe the greatest prayer need of the moment is revival. Because revival will change everything. So let's look in the Bible and in church history at some examples of true revival to get a better understanding of God's definition of revival. And we're going to start in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to turn there. If you see me drinking water and popping little lozenges, you should have seen me a couple of days ago. I have overcome in Jesus' name. Jonah chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I believe this is one of the greatest Old Testament examples of revival, at least that I have found in the Word of God. So we'll begin reading in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's just pause right there and think. It's easy to be hard on Jonah, but the Ninevites were known as a cruel and ruthless people. If they captured anyone in battle, they would torture them to death. It would kind of be like the Lord appearing to you in your living room saying, I want you to go to North Korea and preach the gospel. I want you to go to Al-Qaeda and preach the gospel. So we can hardly fault Jonah for deciding to, to run for his life. But you know, God has a way of dealing with us. And getting us uh, to turn around to his way of doing things. And so we read the story that a great fish came along, swallowed Jonah. After about three days in the belly of that fish, Jonah repented and decided he would obey God. So let's take up the story in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. You know, when God speaks to you for the second time, he's going to say the same thing he told you the first time. And the third time and the 20th time, if it takes 300 times and you're waiting to hear something different, you're not going to hear anything different. He'll tell you the thing he told you the first time. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now imagine, God gave Jonah a one word sermon, or excuse me, a one sentence sermon. That's it. Not three points in a poem and an illustration, one sentence. And imagine what Jonah looked like. I don't know if he had time to clean up after being in the belly of the whale or not, but he was definitely a foreigner. He's, who knows what he looks like. He's walking through the city, yelling out at the, probably the top of his lungs, one sentence. I mean, if we saw somebody like that today, we'd probably call the police and tell them, you need to come lock this guy up. He's, he's mentally deranged. And yet, look what happened. Verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. 
When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And then verse 9, this is what the king said. He said, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Verse 10, and when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Think about it. One sentence, one sentence spoken under the anointing of God caused an entire city of 120,000 people to repent from the poorest person all the way up to the king. Now, do you think that that anointing has disappeared from the earth? No, the Holy Ghost hasn't left the earth. The Holy Ghost is the anointing. That anointing is still available today for whosoever will will claim it. I think Charles Finney tapped into some of it back in his day because he saw almost entire cities turn to the Lord. But uh, that anointing is even more available today. Jonah was only a servant of God. We're children of God. Jonah didn't have the word. He didn't have the name. He didn't have the blood. He didn't have the Holy Ghost. And yet one man under that anointing changed an entire city. So what does true revival look like by God's definition? It looks like entire cities being saved. In this last great outpouring, I believe we can expect to see entire cities turn to Jesus. Now let's move over into the New Testament. Look a little bit at the ministry of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, we'll begin reading with verse 1. Matthew chapter 3. It says, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Notice where he was preaching. In the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 5, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And by the way, I'll be reading mostly out of the New American Standard Version in case it doesn't read exactly like yours. Now, marketing companies tell ministries today that if you want to be successful, uh, it's all about locating the right demographics and being in the right location. Well, John the Baptist didn't have any of that. But if he had, he would have probably located his ministry in the temple in Jerusalem because that's where everybody went. But instead, he went out to the wilderness. There's nothing in the wilderness but rocks and sand and, and animals, wild animals. And yet the anointing on the man was so strong, it says that Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. In other words, multitudes of people went and found where John was because of the anointing. God hasn't changed. The anointing will still draw people today. We don't have to be in the right neighborhood, the right location, dress a certain way, look a certain way, talk a certain way. All we have to have is the presence of God. You know, user-friendly churches are popular. I'm more interested in being presence-friendly. I want the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Ghost in our midst because that's what will draw the people and that was, is what will meet the people's needs once they get there. You know, a rock group can draw a crowd. But needs aren't met at a rock concert. And needs are only met when God is present. Amen? So what does revival look like? It looks like the anointing drawing multitudes of people to the most unlikely places. The wilderness is an unlikely place. But the, the degree of anointing 
that was on John the Baptist draw the, drew the people there. Now let's look over at Matthew 15. We could, you know, we could spend months and years talking about the ministry of Jesus, but I'm just going to look at one particular segment here in Matthew chapter 15, beginning with verse 29. Matthew 15, beginning with verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along by the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there, and large crowds came to him bringing with them those who were lame, crippled. The King James Version says what there? Maimed, right? And that is the correct translation out of the Greek. Maimed, blind, mute, and many others, and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the cripple restored, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Notice great multitudes of lame, blind, dumb, maimed, this word maimed in the Greek is the word kulos. And it's the exact same word that's found in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus was preaching. And he said, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Of course, he wasn't talking about literally doing that. He was speaking in an analogy. But he said, in other words, if there's something in your life that's keeping you away from God, get rid of it. But the word there is cut it off. For it's better to enter into heaven maimed than to, to enter hell with a full body. So this word indicates that there were people in those multitudes who were maimed, who were missing body parts, who were either they were missing them because they had been born without them or maybe they'd been in accidents and had body parts destroyed. The word can also mean mutilated. So you can imagine in that day with the degree of medicine that they did not have. You know, I'm sure there were all kinds of accidents and tragedies, people missing body parts, having maimed body parts, but it said that Jesus healed them. And the crowd marveled. Well, I guess they did. Seeing things like that. We're talking about creative miracles. Creative miracles. Jesus said in John 14 and verse 12, he who believes on me, how many of you believe in Jesus? He said, the works that, you, that I do, you'll do also. And even greater works than these. Well, you do because I go to the Father. Uh, there's a lot of people, they're trying to figure out the greater works. I say, let's just do the works first. Because if we just did the works of Jesus, we would be seeing creative miracles. So what does revival look like? It looks like creative miracles. The maimed and the disfigured being made whole. And I believe we're headed for a move of mass creative miracles here in America not in Africa, not in the islands of the sea or in the jungles of South America, in America. I mean, in the 18 years that we were overseas, as we would come back from time to time, we would just be absolutely appalled to see how the level of morality had gone down and down and down and down. And how many people, I mean... There have always been people in America who weren't sure about God or maybe they declared that they were atheists. But I mean, now we're seeing people that absolutely hate God. They hate Jesus. They want to remove Jesus and God and Christianity out of everything. And it's going to take some miracles of an astounding nature to convince these people that God is real. But I'm telling you, God is able he is able to deliver, and we're going to see a mass move of creative miracles here in America in this outpouring. So maybe you're getting a better idea of why I said that very few people in this room have ever seen a true revival 
by God's definition. We may not have seen it yet, but we're about to. Let's look at Acts chapter 5, the ministry of the early church. We'll begin reading with verse 14 in Acts 5. Acts 5, 14. It says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes, we keep seeing that word, don't we? Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. Well, let me ask you a question. Is the Holy Ghost a liar? Would he exaggerate and stretch the truth? He inspired Luke to write the book of Acts. And if the Holy Ghost said they were all being healed, then guess what? They were all being healed. 100% results. You know, I was up in our Bible school in Prague, Czech Republic, teaching this to our students, and I heard myself say, you know, Pastor, sometimes you hear yourself say things and you have to go check yourself out later to be sure that what you said was right. And so I almost put my hand over my mouth because I heard myself say, and this wasn't just a one-time event. This was happening continuously. So I thought, oh my goodness, you know, I don't want to tell the student something that isn't right. So I went home that night and I checked it out in the Greek New Testament. And sure enough, every verb in this passage of the scripture is in the Greek continuous tense. And we're not going to have a big Greek lesson here this morning. But there is a way, to, there's, a, there's a type of verb in the Greek that shows that something happened one time and then it was over. Like if you called a friend this afternoon and said, I went to church this morning. Well, it started at 10.30. It was over at 5. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it started at 10.30. It was over at a certain time. It was a one-time event, right? But there's another way of expressing action in the Greek, and it shows that things happened over and over and over again, and that's the verbs in this passage of Scripture. So we could read it like people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were continually coming together, continually bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all continually being healed. Multitudes of people. It wasn't just a few people. It was cities from around Jerusalem as well. So this was an ongoing healing revival where they saw 100% results. No wonder James had to write in James chapter 5 and ask, is there any sick among you? The early church was operating in such a high degree of the healing anointing that you would actually have to question whether or not there might be a sick person present. Now, I've been in church since I was little, and I've never been in a church yet where you would have to ask, is there a sick person? There's always somebody sick. Now, I believe we're going to get back to that. In fact, Catherine Kuhlman, before she died, many of you have heard of Catherine Kuhlman, right? Had a tremendous healing ministry. Before she died, Catherine Kuhlman prophesied that before Jesus returns in the true church, now you know every church that has the word church over the door is not the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to be born again to be in the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But she said in the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be able to find one sick person. Now imagine what a draw that would be to the world to realize, man, those people, they're never sick. There's no sick people in that church. 
What does revival look like? By God's definition, it looks like all the sick being continually healed. And that's what we can respect, expect when revival hits. Acts chapter 8, the ministry of Philip, beginning with verse 5. Acts chapter 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed and there was great joy in that city. What city? The city of Samaria. Now have we, have we ever heard about the city of Samaria previously? Do you remember that Jesus Christ in the flesh went to Samaria and the people rejected him? And sweet little John, you know, the one that we think is the, the, the love disciple who never was anything but wonderful and lovely, he and his brother asked Jesus, let us call down fire from heaven on this city. And Jesus rebuked them. He said, you don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't come to destroy people. I came to save them. So this was a city that had rejected Jesus in the flesh and yet years later after the Holy Ghost is outpoured, here comes Philip and has a city-wide revival. Which leads us to believe that there's no such thing as a burned-over field. Now many of us were raised in Pentecostal churches and we heard that term, burned-over field. You know, somebody said, oh, I'm going to go to such-and-such such a country, you know, and, and start a ministry, or I'm going to move to such-and-such such a city or state and start a ministry, and people would go, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's a burned-over field. What did they mean by that? It meant that many people had tried and failed in that particular country or city or state. Oh, they told you that here? Well, isn't that something? <laughs> so what does revival look like? It looks like even the spiritually dead and dry places being set on fire by the power of God. I believe that eventually there will not be a city or a community in America that will not be touched by the presence and the power of God. We're going to have revival in this country, folks. We're going to have revival. What nation has sown more gospel around the world than the United States of America? Now you say, well, we've sown a lot of bad things. Yes, we have. But one thing we have done is we've sown the gospel. More missionaries, more money. When nationals and other countries need to raise money, where do they come to do it? America. Because American believers, for the most part, are generous. And what does Galatians 6 verse 7 say? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We have sown the gospel, and it's time for us to reap the gospel. What the pastor didn't tell you uh, in the beginning, of course you can't say everything in an introduction, but we, uh, my husband and I came off the mission field by divine direction. We never planned to leave the mission field. We planned to either be buried on the mission field or go up in the rapture from the mission field. But God dealt with us very supernaturally and told us to return to America because he said, I'm sending great revival to America and I want you to be a part of it. And with that, we came back. And do you know what? This has to do with missions because the eyes of the world are on America. I mean, we've had opportunity to travel to most of the continents. And even in places where people say they hate America, they're wearing American sports team t-shirts, they're watching American TV programs, they're listening to American music. 
The eyes of the world are on America. You get a big revival going here in America, it's going to spread all over the world. <laughs> now let's look in Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. In my opinion, this is the greatest New Testament example of revival other than the ministry of Jesus. And this was the pinnacle, I believe, of Paul the Apostle's ministry. Acts chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we haven't even heard whether there be a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. So this move of God, this outpouring, this revival, started with 12 people plus Paul. You know, for some reason, we get it in our minds that if God's going to do anything great, he has to start with multitudes of people, stadiums full of people. But usually the things of God start small. A baby in a manger. <laughs> Twelve people. 120 in an upper room. And so he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul started a Bible school. Now verse 10 is where we're, we're headed. This took place for two years so that all, there's that word all again. Is the Holy Ghost lying when he uses that word? Because he could have said most or many, but he said all. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now think about it. In two years' time, starting with 12 people, they reached all of Asia. Now Asia is not, at that time in the Bible, was not the continent of Asia like we think about today. China and Bangladesh, and I don't know if that's in Asia or not. Vietnam, Japan. But Asia was a large province of the Roman Empire. It covered roughly 50,000 square miles. And it had a large population. Now, it doesn't mean that every single person received Jesus, but every single person had an opportunity to hear about Jesus. And think about it. They had no modern aids to help them spread the gospel. No modern means of transportation. You know, they had horse and donkey and cart and foot. That's about it. <clears throat> they had no modern means of communication. No internet. How did they survive? No internet, no cell phones, no telephone, no radio, no television. They had tell a woman and that's usually pretty effective. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they did not have any modern means of communication. They did not have any uh, written literature. Mr. Gutenberg who invented the printing press wouldn't be born for hundreds of years. If they had anything, it had to be handwritten. Now, how on earth did this group of people reach a 50,000 square mile area? And you know, there were large cities. Ephesus had a population of 300,000, and it wasn't even the largest city in Asia. All seven churches that we read about in the book of Revelation started out of this revival that started in Ephesus. 
How were they able to accomplish such a thing in two years' time? Well, I think the next verse gives us a clue at least. Verse 11, and God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. This phrase, extraordinary miracles, I searched and searched, I can't find it anywhere else in the New Testament, not even in the ministry of Jesus, only here. Extraordinary miracles. What is an extraordinary miracle? I have no idea. I mean, an ordinary miracle, if you can call any miracle ordinary, an ordinary miracle is when God intervenes in the course of nature and supersedes the laws of nature. For example, if I was up on this platform, well, maybe over there, and if I jumped off, what would happen? I would probably land flat on my face wearing these heels, but I would go down, right? Why? Because there's a law of nature called the law of gravity. And if I did that 10,000 times, every time, I'm going to hit the floor. But now, if I jumped off that platform and I started flying around this room, you would be seeing a miracle. God would have to intervene in the, in the law of gravity in order to cause that to happen. That's a, quote, ordinary miracle. But apparently, there's a category of miracles that go beyond the ordinary called extraordinary miracles, and I don't know what they were, but whatever they were, it was like, you know, we've seen all these massive fires out in California. What is the one thing that the firefighters fear more than anything else? Wind. The wind, they can have one almost under control, and the wind can take one spark and send it 10 miles away and start another fire. I believe that these extraordinary miracles were like a wind behind the fire of the preaching of the gospel that caused it to spread rapidly throughout that entire province of Asia. The Greek language gives us another clue. This word for performing, God was performing extraordinary miracles, is the Greek word poieo, and it's used of creativity. So the grammar of this phrase indicates that there were extraordinary creative miracles taking place, an almost unending flow of creative miracles. So we're running into that creative miracle thing again when we're talking about revival. What does revival look like? It looks like every single person in entire regions of the world hearing the gospel with extraordinary creative miracles taking place. Now moving to more modern times, right here in America, let's bring it home to America, right? That's where we all live. This is the land we love. I don't know about you, but you cut me. I bleed red, white, and blue. I'm American through and through. And I've been many places in the world, even what are considered to be very rich countries. And every time I came home, I wanted to get out of the plane and kiss the ground. Being back in America, we are so blessed here. But even before we became a nation, in the 1730s and the 1740s, we had what is called the First Great Awakening. It was spearheaded by preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. They said that George Whitefield preached to crowds of 30,000 people in open fields without even a PA system. Many, many people got saved. But then a wave of rationalism came over from Europe and started changing. It started in the universities mostly, and then it just started changing everything here in our country. And you know, you think things are bad in America here now? Back then, it was even worse. They had public Bible burnings. 
They had public meetings where they would take the elements of communion and they would mock the blood and the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers would be meeting together like we're meeting here this morning and suddenly mobs of people would come in the back door and just start beating up people, threatening to kill the preacher. It was terrible, burning the church building down. And the church actually went underground in America for a period of time. But you know, anything the devil does, God has a remedy for it. He can outdo it. And he sent another revival to America called the Second Great Awakening. It was spearheaded by preachers like uh, Charles Finney, who mostly worked in New England, but especially in, in New York, and saw like whole cities turn to the Lord. There was a place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky, on the American frontier. You know, the, America was pushing west at that time. And the frontier was a wild and woolly place. If you've seen many westerns, you know, you know what it was like. Lawless and just crazy. And, and in the American frontier at Cane Ridge, Kentucky, 20,000 people just came out of nowhere and gathered. No, no flyers had been sent. No announcements had been made. They were just supernaturally led together. And that was really the first camp meeting. That's where the term camp meeting comes from because they brought their wagons, they brought their kids, the animals, and they just all camped out there. And they said, anybody that can preach, just find a stump or someplace to get up on and begin to preach. And as the preachers would preach, it was like the wind of God just moved through those masses of people. People were falling out all over the place, having visions of heaven, having visions of hell, getting their lives right with God. And the funny thing is the largest city in the area was Lexington, Kentucky, and it had a population of 1,800. And here you've got 20,000 that God gathered together. Amazing. Both of the Great Awakenings changed the spiritual and even the natural conditions in America. And that's what revival does. It doesn't just change the spiritual, it changes the natural as well. And you know, we can try to legislate and yes, we should pray for our politicians, but there's only so much that politicians can do. You cannot legislate morality. You may force people to abide by certain rules, but until there's a change in their heart, it's only surface. But possibly the single greatest revival since New Testament days started in 1904 in the small nation of Wales in the United Kingdom. It started with fewer than 20 people praying. Now, I don't know what that does for you, but that encourages me. Fewer than 20 people were praying. In a nation of one million, there were 100,000 converts in the first six months. 10% of the population of the nation was converted in the first six months. Now, of course, I wanted to know what a revival like that would look like in America. If 10% of America's population were to be converted in six months, what would it look like here? So, of course, I started in my own home city of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So here's what a revival just on the scale of the Welch revival would look like in America. It would look like every single person in Tulsa, Oklahoma being saved, along with every person in New York City, Los Angeles, Houston, Dallas, Chicago, Philadelphia, San Francisco, San Antonio, San Diego, and Miami. All of these millions of people saved in six months' time. If we only had a revival on the scale of the Welch revival, I believe it will be greater. 
the very thought of that many people coming to Jesus is astounding. But hey, if God did it once, he'll do it again. He's no respecter of persons. If we'll pray like they prayed in Wales, we'll have what they had in Wales and greater. Small groups of Christians in Wales would just meet together and suddenly hundreds of unbelievers would join them and they don't even know how the unbelievers found out they were meeting. City streets were filled day and night. Two and three and four o'clock in the morning, people are out in the streets singing. They're knocking on doors, waking up their friends and neighbors to tell them, share the joy of their salvation with them, encourage them to get saved. The jails emptied out. There wasn't any more crime. The policemen had nothing to do, so they organized gospel quartets and went around and sang at the meetings. Government officials got saved and resigned their positions to be active in the gospel meetings. Boy, we need revival like that, don't we? We need a few to get saved and start preaching the gospel. Alcoholism was rampant in the country, but alcoholics were delivered by the scores. Families were reunited. It was wonderful. Soccer was like NFL or college football here in America. Men bet on the games. They attended the games. They said the stadiums were empty. Can you imagine NFL Monday night football and the announcers come on and they pan the stadium and it's empty. And the announcers say, folks, I guess there's no game tonight because everybody went to the gospel meetings. Everybody went to the revival meeting. The Spirit of God would rest on a village and people would wake up in the middle of the night suddenly convicted that they needed to find God. And they would get out of bed and kneel by their bed and cry out to God for his mercy and his forgiveness. And then that same presence would lift and it would move over to the next village and then move over to the next village. You say, how could God sweep America with revival? Just like that. Just like that. The Welch revival swept Europe, sent missionaries all over the world and heavily influenced Azusa Street here in America, which lasted from 1906 to 1915. The Azusa Street Revival, the doors were open 24-7. They never closed. The meeting never shut down. One of the leaders of Azusa Street said, I would rather live six months at a time like this than 50 years of ordinary life. Wow. When a person would trade 50 years of their life for six months in that kind of presence of God. What kind of presence must that have been? The Shekinah glory would appear in visible form at the front of the auditorium, sometimes like pillars of fire that would go up through the roof and neighbors would call the fire department thinking the building was on fire. But the fire department would get there and there was no natural fire. But there was spiritual fire. Sometimes the Shekinah glory would appear as a thick cloud, so thick that little kids would, try, would play hide and seek in it. So it must have been pretty thick. They had creative miracles. People would come in missing arms. Their arms would grow on. One time, uh, Brother Seymour, who led that revival, was getting ready to pray for a man's leg, and the man said, wait a minute, you don't understand. And he pulled up his trouser leg. He had a wooden leg. So Brother Seymour just laid hands on him anyway, and a, and a natural leg, a real leg, grew out. People that were missing body parts had their body parts recreated, restored, it was, it was amazing. And people came from all over the world. They said it never got over about 100 people. But people came from all over the world. I found out from my brother the other day that my great-grandfather went to Azusa Street. 
But people came and they got filled with the Holy Ghost. And back then, often when they got filled with the Holy Ghost, they would receive complete downloads of the language. They could speak, read, and write fluently in another language. And often they would go to the mission field of that nation whose language they had been downloaded with. I mean, how far below our privileges are we living today compared to what is available in God? That launched the spread of Pentecost all over the world. And today, more than 500 million Pentecostals are around the world. And it's the fastest growing segment of Christianity in the world today. But now, we've been a long time in America without revival, without outpouring. Here we are about 100 years later since Azusa Street. And we're at a crossroads in our nation. I mean, daily we see things crumbling right before our eyes. I mean, laws have been enacted recently that 20 years ago, if you had told me we would have those laws in America, I would have laughed you down. I would have said, there is no way under heaven that we're ever going to have laws like that. And yet here they are. Here they are. We have to have revival. Revival is the only hope for this nation. But I've got good news for you. We're going to have revival. Some of us aren't going to, we're going to stay in God's face until we have revival, amen? But if you don't think that we need revival, let me ask you a question. What's the answer to the drug problem? I mean, when I was a kid, only big cities like New York or Los Angeles or places like that had a drug problem. Now you can go to, into any farming community and they have a drug problem. What's the answer to the immorality and sexual perversion in our country? I mean, I hear stories all the time. Kids on school buses, in the back of the bus, they're watching porn on their cell phones. I'm talking about elementary age children. We've got to have revival. How can the family unit be rebuilt? What's the answer to widespread political corruption? Where can a parent who has a Down syndrome child take that child and see it made whole? Now, we have many wonderful healing ministries in America and around the world today, but I don't know of anyone who's having results like that or where someone who had a deformed or disfigured face could go and be made whole. But what do you think will happen when we start seeing those kinds of miracles take place? I mean, it wouldn't take but one or two happening right here. <laughs> They'd be meeting out in the field. You couldn't get them all in the building. And in fact, I know a minister, we have a minister friend in Tulsa who probably prays, goodness, five, six more hours a day. And he told us he has seen in visions Tulsa surrounded, all the fields surrounded with people. They're just full of people. They're bringing the sick in from other cities. I believe it'll happen anywhere where there's a church like this. They'll just be bringing the people in because the miracles will be popping. Healing will be as normal as breathing. What do you think will happen when the power of God suddenly hits this nation so hard that people walking down the street fall out under the power of God or sitting in their homes fall out under the power of God and have visions of heaven and visions of hell? And they get up trying to find somebody who can tell them, what on earth has happened to me? And I saw hell and I don't want to go there. If you're in Walmart and somebody comes walking up to you and says, I saw hell last night and I don't want to go there. Can you help me? How hard would it be to witness? <laughs> 
See, we have no idea, just a faint idea of what God's about to do. I mean, some of you may just consider yourself, well, I'm just, you know, I'm Sally Wallflower, I'm Tom Nobody, you know. God could never use me. Listen, when the Spirit of God comes on you, you will be turned into another person. It even happened in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came on Saul before he was named king, and he was changed into another person. Even people that knew him before, they said, can this be the same person? Is Saul now a prophet? The anointing, I mean, we could just go through the Bible and show how the anointing came on people and just changed them into somebody they didn't even recognize. I believe in the days to come, believers, we'll have to pinch ourselves. The power of God will be flowing through us in such a mighty way. I believe all the churches and public buildings and cities aren't going to be able to contain all the people that are seeking God, trying to get their lives right with God. I've heard in my spirit so many times, revival will be the salvation of the nation. Revival will be the salvation of the nation. All we need is for revival to just break out in one place. And with social media and everything the way it is, you know, I used to say, Lord, send revival to Tulsa. Now I don't care. Because I know all we've got to do is have it in one place and with social media, it's going to spread like wildfire everywhere. I want, I want you to get hungry to see that kind of revival right here in High Springs, Gainesville area. I want you to be hungry to see that. The impact that it could have on the world. What if it started here? And you were responsible through your prayers and through your faith in a revival that spread worldwide. Can you imagine the rewards of that? Brother Seymour, the lead, you know, before I say that, God has trained a lot of us in faith for like 40 years. What do we think it was for? To buy an island in the Caribbean? To get a yacht, to get three condominiums in Hawaii? What was the faith for? Sure, God doesn't mind us having nice things. He just doesn't want things to have us. But really, the faith needs now to be turned outward. To believe God for souls. To believe God for revival. To believe God for an outpouring of his spirit. Brother Seymour, the leader of Azusa Street, prophesied in 1906 that in about 100 years there would come a revival to America. He said, but this revival will be much greater than Azusa Street. I'm winding down here just in case you wondered. In 1913, Maria Woodworth Eder, many of you have heard of her, great woman preacher, preached to masses of people, 25,000 people under a tent before women could even vote. She was out preaching and seeing all kinds of miracles. She was not aware of Brother Seymour's prophecy, and she prophesied in 1913 almost the same thing about a great revival coming to America in about 100 years. Now, I want to read you a couple of prophecies. Um, the first one was prophesied by William Branham in 1965. This was six months before he died. Now, some of you don't know who Branham was. He was probably the leading minister of the healing revival. He was a prophet of God. He was like accurate, unbelievably accurate. You ought to uh, put in YouTube William Branham and you can see some clips of films. Now, he got off in his later years and preached all kinds of strange doctrine. But in his prime, he was 
I read something by a man that traveled with him. He said, I never saw him miss it. But he would call people out of a crowd and he would tell them, now, you live in such and such a city. Uh, this is the street you live on. The doctor told you this and this and this. And the man only had like an eighth grade education. And he would give them all these long names that the doctor had called their illness. And then he would say, and you're healed. I mean, just accurate. And so this, he prophesied this six months before he died. He said, well, my season has come to a close. I've been in this season where I've laid hands on people one at a time and I've seen blind eyes open, cancers disappear, the lame walk, and oh, it was wonderful. But another season is coming. And this season is going to be a teaching and revelation of the word of Jesus Christ, who we are in him and who he is in us. This teaching season will go for a while and then it will come to a close. And God is going to take every move of God in history and even what we witnessed and saw in Bible days. He's going to put it all together in one great Holy Ghost bomb and drop it on planet earth and the nations will rock and reel with the power of God like never before seen. And major TV news networks, not preachers, are going to show arms and legs being created and eyes being put back into eye sockets and limbs stretching out and the dead being raised. Preachers will simply speak the word. I'm going to put my own little words in here just for a moment. Believers. I believe this last move of God is going to be a move of the body of Christ, a move of the believer and not the superstar preacher like we've seen in the past. Oh, sure, there'll be preachers. We'll always need the five-fold ministry to do their job in equipping the body of Christ. But it's going to be believers going out into your mission field and raising the dead and seeing miracles take place. Preachers will simply speak the word and blindness will leave. There will be so many people that no auditorium, no church, no arena will be able to hold the people and no tent. They will even stand in the open fields. Something is coming. Every mantle, every anointing, every commissioning that has ever existed will be poured into that day. Now, one last prophecy. This was given by Smith Wigglesworth. 1939. Uh, it starts out talking about Wigglesworth and Lester Sumrall, but at some point in the prophecy, then it's all told from there on from Lester Sumrall's viewpoint. In 1939, World War II was about ready to break out. Lester Sumrall was in his 20s. He was working in a Bible school in England and had gotten to know Smith Wigglesworth by reading his books and hearing about his ministry. So for several years, he had been going over and visiting Smith Wigglesworth in his home. One day, Sumrall went to tell Smith Wigglesworth that a police officer had come to his door and told him that everyone who was not an English citizen would have to leave the country. Hitler was threatening to come across the English Channel, so all foreigners had to leave. The young Sumrall explained to the elder minister, I came to say goodbye to you. I appreciate all that you've put into me. There stood a young minister in his 20s and a man in his 80s who wanted to give it to somebody. Oh, would to God we'd have been there that day, right? Smith Wigglesworth told the young minister, I want to bless you. So he held him and he said, Lord, everything that I have, bless him with it. Give it to him. Smith Wigglesworth started weeping as he pulled Brother Sumrall in closer. Now this, the rest of it is told from Sumrall's perspective. 
He was a big man, and as he held me close to him, his tears rolled off his face and hit me in my face. Wigglesworth cried, saying, I probably won't see you again now. My job is almost finished. Sorry. <laughs> as he continued to pray, he cried, I see it. I see it. Brother Summerall asked, what do you see? What do you see? He said, I see a healing revival coming right after World War II. It'll be so easy to get people healed. I see it. I see it. I won't be here for it, but you will be. And there was a healing revival right after the war. He continued to prophesy. I see another one. I see people of all different denominations being filled with the Holy Ghost. That was the charismatic revival. God raised up people during that era like the full gospel businessmen. Then Brother Wigglesworth continued. I see another move of God. I see auditoriums full of people coming with notebooks. There will be a wave of teaching on faith and healing. We did experience that wave he saw, and we call it the Word of Faith movement. Now, so far, the man has been accurate, one after the other. Then he prophesied. After that, after the third wave, and he started sobbing. I see the last day's revival that's going to usher in the precious fruit of the earth. It will be the greatest revival this world has ever seen. It's going to be a wave of the gifts of the Spirit. The ministry gifts will be flowing on this planet Earth. I see hospitals being emptied out, and they will bring the sick to the churches where they allow the Holy Ghost to move. Amen. Churches just like this one. Amen? So I want, I want us to get hungry to see that revival. So hungry that we'll do what it takes to get it here. You might say, well, what can I do to bring that kind of revival? You can pray. You can pray. You know, I've studied revival for years, and I've never seen one yet that didn't come without prayer going ahead first. So my challenge to you is to pray for revival. I'm challenging you to take some extra time in your week now, I realize everybody doesn't have three hours to lay on your face on the floor. We're busy. We've got schedules, work, kids, all kinds of things. But take some time. You know, showering in the morning, commuting to work. Some of you probably commute to Gainesville. My goodness, you've got an hour almost every day, unless you drive really fast. You've got almost an hour a day that you could pray on that commute. But take some time during your week to pray for revival and you say well I don't know how to pray well come back tonight Larry's going to give you some scriptures to pray that's always good to pray the word of God but when you don't know how to pray just say Lord I want to pray for revival Holy Spirit help me pray for revival and then begin to pray in other tongues and he'll help you we have to have revival millions of lives are at stake and think about it what kind of world are your children and your grandchildren and your nieces and nephews going to grow up in if we don't have revival? I mean, when I was a little kid, we played outside till after dark, and our moms didn't worry about us. Now you can't even take your child into the supermarket, but what you've got to keep your eye on them every single second. What kind of world is it going to be if we give 10 or 20 more years without revival? My goodness, I don't want to know. So for the sake, if, if it's not for your own sake, for the sake of your kids and your grandkids, 
and the children in America, we need to pray for revival. You know, as Christians, we're the only ones that have the authority to change things. We can point our finger at the government and various ones, but we're the only ones that have authority before God to change anything. And it's through prayer. I know, I'm absolutely convinced, if we'll pray, God will answer and he'll send revival. And you might say, well, how can you be so sure? Because of 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, It says, if my people, not the world, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Now, I grew up in a full gospel church and we made commitments. You might say, well, I, I wore out the carpet rededicating my life to the Lord, but you know what? It kept me close to him. Now, I'm not going to ask you to rededicate this morning, but what I am going to ask you to do is make a commitment in response to what I preached this morning. We talked about revival, and the thing that brings revival is prayer. Now, I don't want you to stand if you don't mean it, because to me, this is a serious thing. But if you're willing to say before God, I will take extra time and I will pray for revival in America, then I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet because I want to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, you see those of us that are standing on our feet. We're saying that we're committing ourselves to pray for revival. Now, Father, I pray that the spirit of grace and supplication would come upon us, Lord, that we would be stirred in our hearts to pray, that we would be drawn to a place of prayer. And for some of us, Lord, you'll even give us time to have extended periods of prayer. But Father, we're making this commitment to you and I believe that you'll honor it, you'll enable us, you'll pray through us, the Holy Ghost will hook up with us and we'll be able to pray out things that must be prayed out before you can do what you desire to do and that's to pour out revival. So Father, we thank you. We join our faith together and we say we shall have revival in America. America shall be ablaze with the glory of God. From the north to the south, from the east to the west, oh say abba kile bromahaye, ili boche mahasila borata, e gabase moche malakura banai, elemoste lemas, elemas, elemai. For I raised up this nation, says the Lord for my determined purpose and for my glory. And this nation shall rise to her finest hour in the days to come. Oh, say not, we've passed the days of our finest hour. No, says the Lord, the days of your finest hour are ahead. And there will come a great missionary sending in the days to come. Unlike any in the past, many, many, many shall be called to, to foreign lands and they'll be raised up and they'll be thrust forth out of this nation. And many from other lands that I've sent here to this nation shall receive the life of God and the fire of God and they shall return to their homelands with the word of God on their lips and the fire of God in their hands. And great signs and miracles shall be not only in this nation but out from this nation into the nations of the world for this is my land this is my determined purpose and it shall not be thwarted
thwarted. It shall not be throttled by the enemy. So pray, says the Lord, for I require faith on the part of my people so that I can work and cooperate together with them and my purpose be accomplished in the earth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.